The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. In April of 2021, Arkansas Republican Governor Asa Hutchinson vetoed a bill which banned gender-affirming treatment for transgender children, even with a parent's consent. If House Bill 1570 becomes law, then we are creating new standards of legislative interference with physicians and parents. And the bill did become law after the state House and Senate voted to override his veto. And Arkansas became the first state to ban physicians from administering hormone therapy to transgender youth younger than 18. Other states followed with similar bans enacted in Alabama, Arizona, South Dakota, Tennessee, and Utah. And now lawmakers in more than two dozen other states are weighing legislation to restrict or ban access to gender-affirming medical care for transgender youth, prompting legal challenges from LGBTQ groups that argue the bills are discriminatory. Joining me is Sasha Bookert, senior attorney with Lambda Legal. We'd like you to start by explaining what exactly is meant by gender-affirming care, what it encompasses. One thing to unpack immediately when talking about gender-affirming care is that it's not, you know, some kind of care that isn't already regularly provided to almost anyone, you know, uh, whether you're talking about hormones, you know, we all know someone who is taking testosterone because maybe, you know, um, you're an older guy and you want to boost your, or you need it for other medical reasons. There's just a whole range of reasons why, you know, people undergo hormonal treatment. You know, one of the treatments is uh, puberty blockers, you know, which is something that's used for a number of conditions like precocious puberty. But really, you know, what it boils down to is that this care, you know, it's not just automatically granted to anyone that asks for it. It's a decision that's made between a patient and a physician and their family looking at the best options on how to treat gender dysphoria, which is a serious medically recognized condition, you know, that if denied that care, you know, that patient's going to experience, according to the American Medical Association and, you know, other healthcare organizations, really serious consequences, including suicidal ideation and debilitating depression. If they're denied that treatment, that's just something that's been found by courts and by medicine across the board for decades now. So so it's hard to give you a a concrete definition because it's the same care that everybody gets. It's just that it's the care that's provided to treat gender dysphoria. Can you tell us generally about these laws or bills that restrict or ban access to gender-affirming medical care for transgender youth? How do they differentiate them from the treatment given to other youth, for example, let's say for precocious puberty? Well, I mean, they're not in the sense that they're not, you know, making a distinction. They're just picking on trans kids and saying, look, you can't have this care. And they even clarify in some of the the bill language that, you know, sure, we'll continue to provide it for other conditions. But for you and your family, we're going to absolutely deny it. So there there are these bills that, you know, for all of the lip service that's given to parental rights, there are bills that strip those rights from parents and say that, you know, we, the government, without an ounce of medical training in most cases, 
you know, feel like we know better than decades of research and best practice medical care and are going to decide that we're going to create this categorical rule that says that anyone seeking a specific kind of care, say puberty blockers, we're going to categorically deny that to trans kids, you know, because we think we know better. And, you know, oftentimes you know, I've sat through a lot of these different hearings and when, when pressed on these questions, you know, they will concede that they don't have the medical background or training or, you know, wave off the fact that you know, every preeminent healthcare organization in the country that has looked at the question of whether this healthcare is clinically effective has, you know, resoundedly um, clarified that it does, whether it's the American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association, American Academy for Pediatrics, you know, the list is endless. And as opposed to that, you know, state legislators that is deciding to put themselves in the shoes of parents and families and the medical community and, and decide what's best. And it's just absolutely infuriating that they're able to do this. Of course, it's one thing to, you know, provide those kinds of arguments in a state legislative hearing where you feel like you've got the advantage there by not being rebutted, you know, with uh, science and, and instead of stigma. But, you know, when the rubber hits the road and in these cases move to litigation, you know, the courts have, even in very conservative parts of the country, like Arkansas and Alabama, have said that just doesn't wash here. You're not turning to best practice medicine. You're not turning to science. You're, you don't have a basis for these arguments and, you know, have thankfully enjoined those uh, really dangerous attempts to strip parents and, and kids of the best care that they can get. These bills and laws, do they target the parents, the children, the doctors with civil or criminal penalties even? Yeah, oh, yes. Yeah, All three. Really. There's, you know, a number. Well, you know, mostly it's the, the doctors, you know, because the, the aim is to chill the availability of care altogether, to scare people, you know, and that's, I think that bears repeating too. And there was a, uh, a hearing that I, watched a while back and you know one of the medical professionals that was providing testimonies basically told the state legislative hearing to stop scaring people because that's what this really boils down to these are really scare tactics and that's what the a lot of these bills do they seek to criminalize providers you know they're following the hippocratic oath and they're following you know best practice medicine and they're looking to the science you know and that again is clearly shown that these this care is clinically effective and the state's that are passing these laws are seeking to strip that right of them and then to actually punish them, not just with civil penalties, but with, with criminal penalties as well. You know, and a lot of them have bounty hunter provisions that verify that if a clinician, you know, seeks to refer someone to another state for care, that they could also be on the hook for liability. So it's clearly a, you know, an ideologically driven effort. If you look at the landscape here, it's, it's not just healthcare, it's sports bans, it's bathroom bans. It's, it's this absolute shameless targeting of the most vulnerable kids that we have in our schools, transgender kids and non-binary kids. You know, it's just absolutely reprehensible. Eleven states have bills or laws with criminal penalties. And I was surprised that the blue states of New Jersey and Hawaii are included in that. Those are bills that are going to move forward. But, you know, I think that this has been a concerted effort by, you know, some folks, you know, the on the you know far right that are seeking to you know influence you know state legislators wherever they can and you know in any in, in even in the most conservative parts of the country like in Texas and Oklahoma or wherever you have there I mean there's there's you know progressive folks that are you know trying to move forward you know legislation protecting folks so you know I, I think that you know the the language in those bills is is it just demonstrates you know the rabid you know approach that a lot of these folks have taken they're not even attempting to to moderate their views to you know make a piece of legislation viable in those places <laughs> to me it just demonstrates you know the, the the viciousness of these attacks 
at least three of the states, Oklahoma, Virginia, and South Carolina, are targeting people up to the ages of 21 and 26. Do you know how they justify that leap? I don't know how they justify any of this, to be frank, <laughs> June. It's, it's um, unbelievable. I mean, to me, that just, again, underscores that this isn't about health care. This isn't about sports. This is about a view of the world that would erase transgender people altogether. And it, it doesn't end with health care, and it won't end at 26, it won't end at 36. It's just a, an ongoing effort. And it's just so important, you know, that people recognize that, that, that this is the partisan attack, and it, it's about targeting a specific vulnerable population. And our country has seen this before, you know, with different vulnerable populations, and we will prevail, but it's just a really dark moment, especially even when these bills don't move forward. They have an impact. They have a mental health impact on, again, some of the most vulnerable kids out there, and it's just, you know, really sad to, to see state legislators get swept up in this, you know, almost trans panic and introduce these bills that target and seek to cause great harm to, to these kids. And, you know, unfortunately, that rhetoric does get to trans kids and impacts their mental health. We know that because we've seen spikes there's a you know a great resource available for folks called the trans lifeline and they track the number of calls they get and whenever these kinds of bills are introduced whether they're viable or not they see a spike i think it's just an obvious conclusion that this is because of the way in which this rhetoric has really ramped up in the last few years that's become you know a divisive cultural or i guess the folks that are engaging in this war are seem to forget that there are victims and there are real people on the other side of this and there's a lot of harm and damage being done you mentioned Arkansas's law. What argument did the ACLU use there to challenge the law? One of the primary arguments is the constitutional protection against providing unequal protection, you know, the Equal Protection Clause. The bills, in a lot of cases, clarify that, again, that the care that they're seeking to strip from trans kids, they will freely provide to other kids. So they're not making any pretense that this is about targeting trans kids in particular you know, a politically unpopular, vulnerable population. And the ACLU has successfully made legal arguments to that effect, you know, under the Equal Protection Clause. But I think really what it boils down to is what I had just been going over earlier in that the courts are thankfully rigorous and are paying attention to detail and things that you can get away with in a legislative hearing don't wash there. And I think the courts in Arkansas and Alabama, and that we'll probably see, you know, as a result of this legislative session as well, have seen through the, you know, the charade. You know, they know that decisions that are being made here aren't being made uh, in the best interest of the state or of our people in Arkansas. And they're being made based on animus. Otherwise, you would be able to provide the scientific evidence that would support your view that this care is dangerous. And the courts have looked at the arguments that are being put forward showing that, no, you know, this care is medically necessary. It's held the same care is provided to other kids you know, on a daily basis. And they're not going after precocious puberty. They're not trying to strip puberty blockers from those kids. They're just going after trans kids. And I think that the courts have really seen through that. And I'm confident that that'll continue to be the case. So in Arkansas, that law, the so-called SAFE Act, was enacted over the veto of its Republican governor. Yet the Arkansas attorney general said his office will continue to defend the act's constitutionality. What stage are they at? Was it just a preliminary injunction and now they're going for a permanent? You know, and I just, you know, I can't let this go without pointing out that folks are probably familiar with the news clip of John Stewart, formerly from The Daily Show, interviewing the attorney general's office and, you know, really calling them out on the junk science they were putting out with regard to the care. And he responded to, you know, the junk science points that that's an incredibly made up cystic, you know, and that's what the courts are seeing as well. But to answer your question, what happened in Arkansas is that the court, you know, yes, you're right. The, and it just shows to me of all the priorities that the state legislature could 
be focused on, you know, whether it's improving schools or uh, fixing potholes in the roads. I don't know. It like, seems like there's a million things to do other than to, you know, really focus in on this vulnerable less than 2% of the population and pass these really uh, vicious laws. But it just shows you the panic, apparently, that, that is, you know, involved with these, these moves to try to strip these protections, you know, that they would override Governor Hutchinson's veto. And, uh, and, and thankfully, you know, the, the, the court, you know, did issue a preliminary injunction saying, look, you, the, the state act or whatever you want to call it, you know, we call it the attack trans kids bill, um, was enjoined uh, and the, uh, it was appealed by the attorney general's office to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. And the Eighth Circuit Court, Court of Appeals, you know, again, looked at the science and said, you know, frankly, no, this is that doesn't wash here, you know, um, and, you know, uh, they chose science over stigma and upheld the, um, the injunction. So it's still in place. There was a trial. Um, last fall, and we were expecting a decision, I believe, um, sometime soon. But I would check in with the ACLU folks who have uh, litigated this case uh, masterfully. Uh, also, um, it's not just Arkansas. There was a, another health care ban passed in Alabama last year. And similarly, the court, you know, and these are very, as folks know, conservative parts of the country. We're not talking about Hawaii here. And the court looked at the evidence and said, no, we're going to, I'm not going to let this dangerous piece of legislation that's not grounded in science and clearly ideologically driven go into effect and target and harm real human beings, real people. So thankfully that case was enjoined as well. Of course, these, you know, are going to continue to move through the process, but I'm, I'm grateful that they won't go into effect, you know, while litigation proceeds so these folks can obtain the care, you know, these parents and family and providers can give the best care that they can for, for these folks in these really difficult parts of the country. So does the ACLU or Lambda Legal intend to fight each of these laws if they're passed? We're going to defend uh, trans kids, and you know, every day of the week, uh, 365 days a week. You know, we have to make smart, strategic decisions. You know, and, and that is something that's developing. And we certainly will fight until um, every trans kid is able to access the care that they need and deserve. And that's going to be what we're going to do. You know, uh, till the end. And I know we will prevail. This is again, this mirrors, you know, the civil rights battles that we've had in this country. Unfortunately. Over and over and over again, you know, whether you're talking about marriage equality or non-discrimination protections, it's just the same story over and over again. And, uh, you know, I am confident that we will prevail. And again, you know, I'm, I'm really excited about the fact that the courts have, have seen through, you know, the charade and, and understand that this is care that is medically necessary. They're turning to science, you know, rather than stigma in, in reviewing these, these challenges. There are also bills that ban transgender girls from playing on sports teams that match their gender identity. Have there been legal fights against those bills as well? Have they progressed to any reportable point? Um, yeah. And, and again, in response to that, I just, I'm going to make the, the larger point, you know, once more that this really demonstrates the fact that, you know, whether it's healthcare or sports or bathrooms or names and pronouns, these attacks are across the board. It's, it's just absurd to me that, you know, that state legislatures would invest so much time and money and effort on such a vulnerable population, you know, which is less than 2% of the population, and target these kids. When there are so many other important priorities, you know, making sure that people are able to get the health care that they need, you know, making sure that the schools are meeting their kids' needs, and making sure people have food on the table. It's just unbelievable that they've chosen this as the thing that they feel is the most important for them to get done. But yes, there are a number of challenges that are working their way through the courts to make sure that kids can participate. You know, one of them 
is a case that you know we're working on um, involving a, a transgender um, girl in the state of West Virginia who's seeking to play uh, on her girls cross country team, and that case is working its way up to the Fourth Circuit. You know, we're working on a case in Tennessee for uh, on behalf of a transgender boy who just wants to play golf on the boys' team and is being told by the state of Tennessee that he can't. There's also a couple of other cases that have been filed, you know, challenging those as well. But again, it's not about sports. This is about targeting trans kids. Thanks, Sasha. That's Sasha Bookert, senior attorney with Lambda Legal. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com. Companies in Illinois that collect fingerprints, face scans, and voice prints without proper consent face the risk of millions of dollars in penalties after the state high court's ruling in a case against White Castle. A former White Castle manager alleged that the hamburger chain violated her biometric privacy rights by collecting fingerprints without her written consent every time she clocked in and out of the timekeeping system. The Illinois Supreme Court found 4-3 to that a separate claim for damages can arise each time a business fails to seek permission to gather biometric data from workers or consumers or fails to disclose retention plans for that information. Since the state's enactment of the Biometric Information Privacy Act in 2008, it's been viewed by defense lawyers as a boon to the plaintiff's class action bar, which has filed litigation against big tech and social media companies, airlines, railroads, retailers, grocery stores, restaurants, and more. Joining me is privacy specialist James Shreve, a partner at Thomson Coburn. Start by, you know, explaining what the issue was before the Illinois Supreme Court. There have been several ambiguous issues that have been litigated under the Biometric Information Privacy Act. And one of the early ones uh, that was addressed in a case called Rosenbach was who can bring an action under BIPA to utilize the liquidated damages provision is an aggrieved person, as uh, the, the law defines it. And then the issue that came up in White Castle was whether or not each collection of a, of a biometric can result in its own claim as far as those liquidated damages provisions are concerned. So 
if, let's say, an employer uses a biometric time clock and they're, they're sued by the employee for violations of BIPA, they use, say, the, the same thumbprint. Is it uh, a claim for just that first collection of the thumbprint, or is it for every collection from the first to the last? Because each violation, can, it can be $1,000 liquidated damages, or if it's a knowing or reckless violation, $5,000 in damages. So obviously, this makes the, the potential liability several times greater in magnitude. I've never done anything about on the, what is the purpose of Illinois Act? I mean, do the employees at White Castle know? Don't they know that they're getting their fingerprints scanned? What's the point of the act? The idea was that biometrics are considered just a, a somewhat different type of sensitive information than others, largely in part because they can't be changed. Whereas you can, you can change a password, you can change an account number, you can't change a thumbprint, you can't change an iris scan. And so uh, the Illinois legislature you know, wanted to make sure that people were notified and give their consent for those, those collections. And so actually many years ago, it was enacted, I think in, in 2008, I think technically it was the second state biometrics law after Texas. And actually, one of, one of my colleagues here at the firm, uh, John Cullerton, was in the Illinois Senate and was president of the Illinois Senate soon after the, the law was enacted. And so he could tell you that they just wanted people to be notified that this was happening and, and to some way give their consent. And so it, to discourage uh, the surreptitious collection of, the, of this kind of information and to have some incentive for employers or others to get that kind of consent in place. But the intention wasn't what we have in place now, which is that this has become just a hotbed of, of litigation with absolutely enormous potential damages for a company when the plaintiffs don't have to show any actual damages at all. Why did the majority decide that you need consent, I guess, for each and every finger swipe or face scan? Here, they were really focusing on, on the, the damages issue. Theoretically, you could certainly do one consent that would cover all collections. But if, if you don't get that appropriate consent, you know, whether it's once or, or, or each time, could you have a, a claim for each one of those? And so here, the Illinois Supreme Court, the majority is saying, and I would note it, it's a 4-3 majority, so it was contentious, that although they're sympathetic that this could result in, in extremely large damages, that the way the law is written, that this, this is the conclusion they had to come to. The dissent, or four Democratic-appointed justices in the majority, one Democrat, the chief judge, and two Republicans in the dissent, said that the legislature could not have intended this kind of result, to, to have the, this, this kind of enormous damage potential. The damages are discretionary? So you could have a case without any damages at all? Yes, and for strategic reasons, a lot of plaintiffs don't plead any actual damages uh, from it. To avoid having cases removed to federal court, it's sometimes more advantageous to not plead any. So, yeah, you can have a case where someone's pleading that they were not actually damaged at all based on the violation of, of BIPA, but they want to utilize that $1,000 per violation statutory are there some huge awards out there that have already been put in place? 
there was a case against a railroad, freight railroad company a few months ago. It, it was a very large verdict. And we're in some ways just at the start of this because we're working through several of the issues. A lot of cases right now have been settled, and we've seen certainly settlements, many in the, in the millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars. Those are going to go up considerably after the ruling in White Castle. As we move forward, you know, cases that are currently pending or are going to be filed, I think we can expect that there are going to be settlements in those cases because it, this certainly provides a lot more leverage to, to plaintiff's counsel in those settlements. And so I think we're going to see settlements that are you know, going up considerably from what we've seen in the past. And is it, is it mostly employees who are suing under this law? Yes, Andrew. That's the, one of the things. Is the, the law is not written specific to employees, but the vast majority of the cases that have been filed to this point have been involving employees and, and disproportionately involving biometric time clocks. So is it likely that in light of this, employers will just find another way to track when their employees come in and leave? Or go back to the old timestamps. I don't know. It is quite possible. I mean, I think, obviously, from my perspective, I'm a compliance attorney. So I, I help clients get into compliance, you know, get the consents they need. And so it makes it all the more important to do that. I mean, I think everybody has to do a risk analysis. Is using that biometric time clock worth it for me? You know, or can I, can I address the risk appropriately with getting a good consent? I mean, I'd also note the focus to this point has all been on failure to obtain proper consent. The prior written consent that BIPA requires, there are several other requirements in BIPA about the use of biometric information, about how, how it can be stored, how it's you know, protected. To this point, I think the, the focus has been on, on notice and consent just because that's in some ways the easiest to prove. But if if we do get better consent in place, uh, we may see some of those other issues get litigated down the road. By doing the scan, the fingerprint scan or the face scan, isn't there an implied consent? Because you're doing it and you know you're doing it. The issue is that the, the language of BIPA says you need to have prior express written consent. And so you know, that makes it, it difficult, even if the average person would, would realize you know, that, that that is being collected about them and they repeatedly provide the biometric, it still says you have to get written consent. So do you think as a compliance officer that an employee signing a written consent form, you know, a lawyered written consent form once can state that Anytime I scan my fingerprint, I give consent. Would that work, or would you think that each and every time they'd have to have a consent? Uh, well, you can never uh, give the that ironclad guarantee, but um, I, I think if you word the consent properly, you, you make it clear that the biometric identifier will be collected repeatedly over time. You. Uh, make it, it it's conspicuous so the person knows clearly what they're consenting to. I think you could do it with a, a single consent. It'd be pretty impractical to do it each time. Um, I certainly hope that courts would be w- would recognize that. And, and we have a lot of other contexts where a, a single consent can cover 
multiple actions. So I would certainly hope that would, would take care of it here. A White Castle spokesman said, we're reviewing our options to seek further judicial review given the strong dissenting opinion. What further judicial review are they thinking about? This is the highest court in Illinois, right? Sure. And I'm guessing they probably mean there are other legal points to be addressed. I I think that there's an argument to be made um, that there are constitutional guarantees on excessive fines. And you could certainly make the argument that this portion of BIPA, in light of the finding at White Castle, is, is unconstitutional because it violates those constitutional guarantees against excessive fines, given what we've seen from the, from the court now. And more states are considering these kind of laws? There are sort of two models of state laws out there. There are three biometric privacy laws existing. You have the Illinois law, which has this statutory damages provision, permits a private right of action. You have somewhat similar laws that were enacted in Washington State and Texas that have similar substantive provisions but don't have a private right of action and don't have the the statutory damages provision. And so some states are looking to the Texas or Washington model. Some states are looking at Illinois as they consider biometric privacy laws. I know that in New York State, uh, they're considering a law that's very, very similar to what Illinois has done. Missouri and I think uh, Massachusetts all considering laws that look a lot like Illinois. So if you adopt very similar laws, this the White Castle decision could have similar effects well beyond Illinois borders. Thanks so much for joining us on the show, James. That's James Shreve, a partner at Thompson Coburn. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.